This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's special guest is Elaine C. Kmart. She is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program, as well as the director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. An expert on American electoral politics, government, innovation, and reform in the United States. Focusing her research on the presidential nomination system and American politics. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me, Ian. Thank you. And so you wrote uh, this, this great article on Ken Biden past immigration reform. History says it will be tough. I want to look back on the timeline of comprehensive immigration reform and uh, to see how we got to this place today, what's the obstacles in the way and potential solution. So I, I'd just like to start out with why is comprehensive immigration reform so hard to pass? Well, it's so hard to pass because it has for, you know, 20 years now, more than 20 years, um, the passions it has aroused in the public have overwhelmed the will of the politicians to do something about it. So in both 2007 and then again in 2013, we, we had attempts at comprehensive immigration reform and we had a lot of big shots all lined up willing to do it in a bipartisan manner. And both times they got stopped by very, very, very um, intense opposition from within their own parties. Both times we, we saw this sort of stop dead and not even come up for a vote. So, you know, the it's great that Biden wants to do this. It's great that, you know, Nancy Pelosi wants to do this. But what history tells us is, ironically, that's not enough. Right. So let's start with 2007. What were some of the obstacles in, in the climate at that time? Well, you're, the basic problem in 2007 was that the Democrats took over the House. Nancy Pelosi was elected first woman speaker. She had very high approval ratings. So people thought, wow, we can actually do this now. The Democrats are in control of the House. In the Senate, you had two real lions of the Senate. You had Ted Kennedy, a Democrat. You had John McCain, a Republican. They both wanted to do immigration reform. And George Bush, who was president who wasn't particularly strong, a strong president then, because he was suffering from the Iraq war and stuff like that. But nonetheless, he, as a former governor of Texas, also wanted to do immigration reform. So, so it looked like the stars were all aligned, right, in, in, in 2006, 2007. Well, a couple things threw it off course, right? One is the proponents of immigration reform thought that they would help their cause by planning a series of massive marches in the spring of 2006 all around the country. And the irony of those marches, which at the, in the moment were thought to be very successful, was that they, they created a backlash a, bat, a nativist backlash, which frankly over the years has only grown in power. And so suddenly Republican members of Congress, Republican senators who might have just kind of gone along with this, suddenly their offices were flooded with calls from people saying, no, you can't do this. This is un-American. You're going to 
give away our country, et cetera. You know, Spanish is going to become the, the language of the country, you know, on and on and on. So um, there was a kind of tactical mistake there. Uh, the other thing that happened is that Bush, he knew going into it that he needed to have a significant number of Democrats because he knew that there was some piece of the Republican Party that just wasn't going to go along with this. I don't think he understood until they got into it how strong that piece was, but he knew there was a piece that wasn't going to go along with it. What everyone sort of missed was that the Democrats turned out not to be united in this either. So it turns out that you had two important factions of the Democratic Party. The labor unions ended up dissing the bill and they didn't like the guest worker provisions. And so the head of the AFL-CIO came out against the bill and the Black Caucus was not terribly enthusiastic about it. One um, former United States Senator, Carol Mosley Braun, who you may remember first Black woman senator from um, Illinois, she told a, a group that I was in that, you know, her people, meaning in her neighborhood in Chicago, um, they, whenever they break the law for the slightest reason, you know, the cops come down like a ton of bricks on them. And that therefore, the thought to them of, you know, rewarding people who had done something illegal by coming here illegally was anathema. That was not evident to a lot of people who thought that the Democrats would be united. Um, there was also polling that suggested that lower income Democrats were not at all enthusiastic about immigration reform. It was only upper income Democrats. So basically what you had in 2006, 2007 was the Republican party was divided and the anti-immigration group got stronger as the debate went on. And the Democratic Party turned out to be divided enough that they could, in the end, Pelosi and Bush couldn't do what they thought they were gonna be able to do, which was put together a bipartisan deal to pass this bill. So you, that, that's the story. And, and you know, one of the things, it's, it gets repeated in 2013 in, in a di slightly different way, but one of the lessons for Biden is that you let this cat out of the bag, right? And you start making it real and et cetera. Um, and there's a lot, unlike a lot of pieces of legislation, which the public doesn't really care about, you know, or, or weigh in on, uh, this one they do. And it's a tough one. It's really a tough one. Right, absolutely. And I think some of the statistics during that time through uh, Pew Research Center, uh, they asked, with the growing number of newcomers from other countries, does this threaten traditional American customs and values? And liberal, only 9% of liberals uh, say that they did. But for disadvantaged Democrats, it was 53%, as well as conservative Democrats. And the same thing with, um, do they strengthen American society? Uh, liberals, you know, said yes with 87%, um, but disadvantaged Democrats said yes only at 34%. So even within the Democratic Party, there was a discrepancy uh, depending upon your social economic status. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, it's funny how even sophisticated politicians sometimes miss 
the nuances of of these things and 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 for good reason sometimes the public doesn't know what they think until the issue is placed in front of them in a in a in a pretty you know important way and then they and then they say oh wait a minute I don't like that or that's okay with me. And so th this has been the story of immigration reform. Right. Um, so yeah, to wrap up 2007, so the immigration bill, it died in the summer of 2007 when proponents failed to garner the 60 votes in the Senate required to move the bill forward. That bill was to create a, a pathway to citizenship, citizenship for 12 million undocumented immigrants who were currently uh, residing in the United States. Um, so that really shows a, a factional divide in, in the House Democrats. So that was 2007. We fast forward to 2013, and uh, the, the administration looks a little bit different. <laughs> we have different <laughs> players. We have different people. Um, uh, so what was the climate shift there and what were the determining factors in blocking comprehensive immigration reform during that time? Well, um, by 2013, the Democrats are a little bit more united, okay? In, in fact, the labor union has changed uh, president. There's a new president of the AFL-CIO. The they've worked out better ways of dealing with the guest worker issue. Um, so the labor, you, labor movement is more enthusiastic. Plus, of course, the composition of the labor movement has changed. And one of the bigger unions, SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, is largely composed of immigrants or first, first generation um, immigrants. So, so the lab, labor has has changed in those years. Um, Obama is president. Obama wants to do this. Wants to get this done. He he won with um, a significant number of of Hispanic voters. So you know he he owes them. Um, and so the Democratic coalition is 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 a little bit stronger on this topic, but. In this year, in this in the interim, the Republican coalition, the Republican Party has discovered the power of this issue to rev up their base, to bring out new voters, etc. John Boehner is Speaker of the House, and he is on thin ice. Okay, he is having to battle every day the Freedom Caucus, which is the sort of leftover Tea Party Caucus, and they are very, very nativist in their views very anti-immigration. Um, they're the precursors of, of a sort of the Donald Trump Republican Party. And Boehner can't bring this thing to the floor because he knows that they'll be that it'll pass, right? There's some because the Democrats are all for it and there's uh, some Republicans for it. But he knows if he brings it to the floor, his caucus is going to revolt against him. And if you'll remember, so he decides not to bring it to the floor, even though in the Senate, there's um, a gang of eight, four Democrats, four Republicans that are willing to move it forward, but Boehner won't bring it to the floor because frankly, it would have been the end of his speakership. Now, the irony to this story is that shortly thereafter, Boehner resigned. He just realized that he, the hell with it, he could not deal with 
the direction that his caucus had taken. They didn't support him. They were suspicious of him, et cetera. So, um, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of too bad. If Boehner had decided earlier he was going to resign, maybe he would have, you know, brought it to the floor anyway and say, the hell with it. I don't care if my caucus, you know, votes me out because I'm resigning. But uh, it didn't, didn't work out that way. So we have for the second time in a row a... Uh, a situation where a significant portion of the leadership of the country wants this to happen. And yet in the end, it doesn't. And uh, that's that's happened twice now in the 21st century. So um, I know there's a lot of people, myself included, hoping that Biden will have better luck, but boy, this is a tough, tough issue. Right, and that was largely due to the influence of the Tea Party, right? The Tea Party movement, it sort of pressured the Republicans to not uh, continue in that direction. So it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, when you think about uh, different administrations and, and the shifting of, of guards, it still takes uh, a solid voting block for everybody to be all in one yeah. accord, right? And um, it's it's difficult to get everybody on the same page in that sort of sense. So for today, what would it entail to get this passed? Uh, what would need to be in place for something like this to happen? Well, the you know, in the the House has a very small majority. Um, the House Democrats do. On the other hand, there's always been sort of a handful of Republican votes that would vote for immigration reform. I mean, for, for various reasons. So my guess is that, you know, you could maybe pass it in the House, but then you get to the Senate and you get to this filibuster and the 60 vote problem. So the Democrats, you know, they don't have enough in the Senate to really pass this. And that's why I think you haven't seen, even though Biden fulfilled his promise of sending an immigration bill up um, to the Congress, like in his first day or his first week or something like that, um, you've seen really no action on it in, in, in the Congress. Now, um, to a certain extent, that's understandable. It's been pushed aside because of COVID was so overwhelmingly important to everybody um, and aid to the, the COVID aid was critical to people in the economy, um, you know, but now that we're hopefully maybe getting out of this emergency situation a little bit, um, the question will be, can they do something? Can they do something in the Senate to get them to 60 votes? I think that's hard. Okay, I think that's very hard. So you have to then look to 2022 and ask the question, could the Democrats pick up some seats in 2022? History tells us the answer to that is no. Mostly the president's party loses seats in the off terms. But I'm one of the few people who's a little optimistic about that just because Biden, is, because of the end of COVID and because of what he's done to end COVID, it, it looks like we might be in a real economic upturn um, through this year and through 2022. And that could really help elect some Democrats. Uh, the other thing that's going on is Donald Trump continues to be the you know crazy guy that he is. And Donald Trump is persisting in supporting Republican candidates in states 
that other Republicans think aren't very strong. So for instance, in North Carolina, he's supporting the a candidate that most people think are, is the weaker candidate against the Democrats. But you know, Trump, one of the famous things about him, he doesn't listen to anybody, he's, he's, he's brilliant, right? So he only listens to himself. So it's possible that the Democrats might do better in the Senate than expected if Trump gets his way in the primaries, you see, and nominates, mm -hmm. some, pe nominates some people who, who are just too far out there for the majority of voters to vote for. So I think between a good economy for Biden and um, Trump mucking around with this and not listening to anybody as usual, I think the prospects for some pickups in, of the Senate might be better than most of the pundits at this point are expecting. Well, Elaine, if, if you're optimistic for 2022, I'll be optimistic. Well, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep my fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, in general, what are you excited about? Are you working on any projects or uh, a certain area of research that is exciting you right now? Well, I'm, I'm doing two things, right? One is having a look at the 2022 elections and, and what you know, 2020 can tell us about those elections. And one of the things I'm working on is it, it, there is a little bit of evidence from the New York City mayor's race. And we'll see in some of the other races in November that the Democrats are moving beyond gender and race to social class. That the, that the big issue, for instance, the reason Eric Adams seems to have won in New York was not because he was black, but because he identified early on that pe particularly people who are lower income or middle income, they are the ones most hard hit by crime. So he, he identified the crime issue early on and pledged to do something about it. And, and, you know, rich Democrats, there's a lot of rich Democrats these days, uh, they don't, they're not affected by this, you know, they don't live in neighborhoods that, that where it's scary at night. Um, and so one of the interesting things emerging is a new class consciousness on the part of uh, Democratic Party, which I hope will get to their, to the leaders of the Democrats. So that's, that's a very interesting and new, new thing that I think is happening. Then I'm also looking at what various governments did during COVID in order to prepare us for the next COVID, you know what I mean, for, for the next thing, because, you know, all of these things are an opportunity to learn. And I'm a big supporter of uh, Senator Menendez's um, and Senator Collins bill to create a COVID-19 commission, and which in Congress would have a look at you know, what happened and what can we do better? I mean, the Democrats would all like to say, ah, it was all Trump's fault. You know, Trump was a jerk, therefore, you know, but it's always more complicated than that. You know, there's always, there's always deeper issues of organizations and how they function. And uh, that I think is important for us to understand. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I think what you said earlier about that, the social class awareness, right? Um, and to almost flip the perspective and show that a lot of people in the same sort of social economic standing are experiencing a lot of the same things. It doesn't yeah. matter what your gender is, your, your race, background. Now, it may affect 
uh, certain people disproportionately. And uh, we can't forget that. And we will do everything that we can to make sure those voices are heard. But it's a common experience throughout the entire spectrum. And that seems to be uh, pretty effective in Adam's <laughs> approach you right. know, this, this year. So that's very important. And then moving forward with, as you said, the next COVID, you know, do we have the security systems in place? Do we have the right preparation? Do we have the right vaccines? So when the next unknown situation comes, right. we'll be prepared for that. So uh, we're definitely looking into that. If you write any uh, great articles uh, next, we'll have you back on. Uh, on those <laughs> topics. Happy to, we, happy we to come back on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elaine. You're and welcome. I appreciate your time. You're welcome, Ian, and you have a great day. And uh, thanks for all the good work you do. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.